Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics, a weekly podcast series by the Center for Public Policy Research, where we bring to you podcasts with insightful discussions and newer perspectives on a diverse range of topics of contemporary relevance, with experts to discuss, deconstruct, and advocate for things that matter. Podcast episodes of Policy Beyond Politics by CPPR are on Spotify, Amazon Music. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and on cppr.in. This is Sharon Susan Koshi, Research Associate at CPPR. We are joined by Dr. Devesh Roy from Delhi and Dr. Maria Monica Vihaja from Singapore. Dr. Devesh Roy is the founder chairman of the Institute for Pioneering Insightful Research and Edutech Private Limited Inspire at Greater Noida which is a policy think tank involved in research and consultancy in the areas of economics and climate change. He's an economist, development banker and consultant with 32 years experience with the National Bank for Agriculture and Rural Development or NABAR. Dr. Maria Monica Vihaja is a visiting fellow at ISIS Yusuf Ishaq Institute and a former World Bank economist in the World Bank's Poverty and Equity Global Practice. The main research topics are food security, agricultural reforms, jobs and digital economy, as well as regional and global architecture. Welcome speakers to the podcast. India's presidency at the G20 offers a momentous opportunity for the nation to bolster its endeavors in addressing the growing challenges of food security for resilient and equitable food systems. In the context of recent trends of burgeoning climate insecurities, prolonged global conflicts, rising food prices, and a growing global population, this podcast will examine India's priorities for food security and agriculture as the G20 president. This podcast will also look into the need for inclusivity within the food security conversation by emphasizing technology, digitization, climate smart agriculture, digital public trans in infrastructure, and more. First question is to Dr. Devish Roy. In your opinion, what should India's presidency prioritize in order to target deep-rooted issues of hunger and food insecurity in developing nations? Thank you. Uh, India's G20 presidency needs to address food insecurity by ensuring accessibility, affordability, and sustainability of food and food products for those in need, particularly in developing countries and least developed countries. So let's, let me list out some of the priorities for G20 during India's presidency. First is to coordinate and uh, its multilateral organizations and develop a comprehensive action plan to address food and nutrition uh, insecurity globally. That is with uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Food Program, the World Bank, uh, uh, International Food uh, Policy Research Institute, etc. And second, to bring to the forefront globally the research activities of the Indian Council of Agricultural Research and its affiliated institute for the benefit of countries impacted by food and nutrition insecurity. Third, to facilitate international trade to ensure diversified food availability, because diversifying trading partners and traded uh, foods is key to building absorptive capacity and supply shocks to prevent supply shocks. Fourth is to facilitate humanitarian supplies for ensuring access to food in emergency situations and call on UN member states and all relevant stakeholders with available resources to provide in-kind donations and resources to support countries 
most affected by the food crisis. And next is to make the world world's food system more resilient and sustainable through diversification and investment in nature-based solutions, ensure diversity in market channels and food stocks. Uh, number six, I would say, is uh, to enhance investments in innovation ranging from research and development to on-farm applications. Next priority would be uh, better connectivity, essential for uh, resilience building. Agri-food systems rely on connectivity to physical and other infrastructure to function, such as communication, transport network, crucial for ensuring a diverse supply of food and a rapid recovery after shocks. So finally, uh, leverage information and communication technology and digital tools for logistics uh, to improve the effectiveness of agricultural extension, advisory services, and learning. So these are some of the priorities uh, which I have identified and uh, for the G20 during this presidency. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Rai. Um, now, Dr. Vihaja, what role do you think collective action, resilient and sustainable agriculture, and food supply systems play in bringing the critical gaps in food systems across the world. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, I think um, I think we, we we've heard uh, very comprehensive answers, uh, but like how the G20 can play roles in terms of ensuring uh, food and nutrition security globally. So now. Uh, about the role of collective actions and resilient sustainable agriculture and food supply system in bridging the critical gaps in our food systems around the world. So I'm going to start with talking about the sustainability part of our agri-food systems. As we know that uh, agri-food systems are both a contributor and a victim of climate change. This century, about 25 to 30% of global food production could be affected by extreme weather and other climate, uh, climate change shocks. And globally, agri-food systems account for one-third of greenhouse gas emissions. So ignoring the emissions of greenhouse gas emissions from our agri-food systems is not an option anymore if we want to cap the world's temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius from the pre-industrialization level. And ideally, our agri-food systems produce agriculture products without destroying forests and natural habitat, uh, while at the same time, uh, we educate farmers to adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change. And the urgency on making our agri-food systems more resilient and sustainable need a paradigm shift from the production-centric to economic-centric mindset. And this is according to one of Indian experts on sustainable agriculture and water resource management, uh, Fia Shianskar. However, changing the mindset from the production-centric uh, green revolution paradigm to eco ecosystem-centric paradigm has been proven very difficult. At the country level, I think there are ways uh, where governments could build more sustainable agri-food systems. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with listing a couple of possible ways uh, that in individual countries could build more sustainable agri-food system. First one is that the government could focus on intensification instead of extensification 
that usually involve land use change, especially through deforestation and peatland conversion that contribute highly to greenhouse gas emissions. And the second is to improve supply chain efficiency. Globally, food waste is responsible for approximately 6% of greenhouse gas emissions, three times the emissions from the aviation sector. Around one third of the food produced globally is either lost or wasted every year. And third, uh, the government uh, or individual country could build climate change adaptation and mitigation capacity through improved agriculture extension services and technologies. And then the fourth is that uh, individual countries could remove incentives and policies that support unsustainable practices. For example, subsidies that hinder crop production diversification away from rice that is water intensive and emits a lot of methane gas gases. And all these changes uh, call for new knowledge, tools, policies, and wisdom, and will require an interdisciplinary approach as ecological risk and food security bring in biophysical and health issues. And the changes needed uh, for agri-food systems to become sustainable must rely on science to create evidence-based policy and implementation at the national, provincial, and local levels. We can take Sweden as a model for sustainable agri-food systems, and the country uh, ranks first long, alongside Japan for sustainability in agri-food systems. The questions are what works for other countries and how do we do it? This is only one challenge that we are facing to build more resilient and sustainable agri-food systems. The other risks include conflicts and wars that we know make our global food and nutrition security even more fragile and unequal. This is partly because our agri-food systems are very interconnected. Like a war in Ukraine has caused hunger in Africa and ripples around the world causing high food, energy, and fertilizer prices or export bans on rice, wheat, palm oil has spilled down into panics and world price surges. So now the question is how, uh, like what can the G20 do? I think, you know, with multiple challenges, we need better social contracts to manage our collective actions. And what the G20 can do uh, first, I think is to restore and reinvigorate market confidence to keep international food trade open, as uh, our previous speaker already uh, mentioned. And we have to start from the assumption that food security is fundamental to national security and national sovereignty. And hence, domestic political consideration could override international or global rules. However, there are ways to help countries to maintain their national sovereignty without hurting the global international trade. For example, WTO allows trade restrictions on food for national security reasons, but should price controls or export restrictions be necessary, it should be targeted, temporary, and transparent. Also, establishing a global food reserve can restore confidence in the currently, currently loopsided and tenuous international food system and precarious international food trade. Today, close to three quarters of the world's food stocks are in five countries or region, the United States, the European Union, India, China, and Brazil, 
all of whom are G20 countries. So similar to the ASEAN plus three emergency rice reserve that can be tapped in case of emergency, these five countries could agree to release some of their stocks to relieve global supply when food prices rise perilously high. A global food reserve reinforced by transparent uh, sharing of credible data could decisively also change the perception and expectation of global food availability and avert panic behaviors that leads to hoarding and stockpiling. The present uh, tribulations underscore the necessity of the uh, agriculture market information system, which the G20 set up under the 2011 presidency to enhance food market transparency and food security responses. And the G20 leaders could go even further by forging perhaps an international food security that obliges suppressed countries to assist other countries during times of shortage. And uh, also learning from ASEAN uh, cooperation, we need to highlight the importance of cooperation and regular communication between states to maintain efficient food supply flows and stable prices. And the second, um, I guess, big initiative that the G20 uh, could initiate in, is in regards to sustainability, that the G20, country, uh, G20 could uh, encourage uh, its members to have a new framework that takes into account the social economic dimensions and the environment uh, and ecosystem dimension. And a shift away from production-centric toward ecosystem-centric agriculture practices, however, needs to be well calibrated, coordinated, and staggered as the real world experience from Sri Lanka has demonstrated. And as importantly, we need to take into consideration the, the possibility of food and energy contention. For example, in the case of biofuel. So maize has been used uh, for ethanol, uh, uh, for gasoline uh, blends in the US, sugarcane in Brazil, palm oil in Indonesia. So I think in, in regards to food energy contention, uh, perhaps biofuel mix uh, could use more of non-food non commodities like rubber seeds. Although each country has its own challenges, the strategies to simultaneously address the three dimensions of social, economic, and uh, environment dimensions, hint at crop diversification, intercropping, R&D, and investment in infrastructure and logistics to reduce food losses, giving technical advices to farmers on adapting to and mitigating climate change through improved agriculture extension services, and climatology information and advisory services, as well as leveraging the private sector involvement to support farmers in terms of product standards and choices, as well as trainings. And the G20 could hold uh, regular working groups with each country updating their progress towards moving to more ecosystem-centric agri-food systems, especially since our, our ecosystems is a global common good. There are also other challenges that I might not have time to elaborate. Uh, this include aging farmers population. The global average farmers uh, right now is 60 years old. So uh, we need to find ways to attract young farmers into the sector. And also in regards to displacement uh, because of climate change. So climate change has created a lot of displacement where people are pushed out from their homeland to find food elsewhere. The G20 
uh, could come up with some sort of measures. Although we may not be running out of food uh, soon, but inequality to access to access food will worsen because of this displacement. And other challenges include population growth, urbanization, changing diet, and rising incomes that will increase demand for food in the near future. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Dr. Ehaja. Um, now, as a follow-up question, because we were increasingly talking about how agriculture can be more sustainable and resilient. And uh, given the context of India, where we have, uh, we are facing huge pressures when it comes to our population, as well as changing diet, um, how do you think climate-smart agriculture can transform existing agri-food systems? Do you think it's a way to actually, you know, convert production-based agriculture to, say, an eco-sensitive agriculture? Yes. Uh, so let me uh, take a step back a little bit. So uh, as already mentioned before, uh, due to the success of Green Revolution, shifting the paradigm from production-centric to ecosystem-centric is extremely difficult since it has become so entrenched in farmers' practices and in government policies such as the MSP in, in India. And uh, this kind of agricultural supports and policies, uh, such as pushing farmers to grow wheat and rice in India, and supplying them uh, to the public procurement system with a guaranteed minimum support price may have a negative uh, impact on the groundwater, for example, as both rice and wheat are very water intensive. So, uh, so I think uh, there are there there are policies that uh, or like reforms that uh, need to take place. I think the first one is to remove mistargeted uh, mistargeted farming subsidies in a well-calibrated, coordinated, and staggered ways. This is not only for India, but also like many other developing countries like Indonesia. And in terms of climate-smart agriculture, my recommendations uh, may be more general, not specifically for India. But then in general, uh, while public policy could trigger the transformation, I think the private sector needs to drive the transformation. So, so uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, to move into climate smart agriculture, I think the private sector uh, has uh, a big role to play. Uh, for example, allowing the private sector to compete alongside state-owned enterprises in inputs such as seeds, fertilizer machines, and other technologies could be one way to drive the transformation. As importantly, technologies have to be made available, affordable, accessible, and locally appropriate. And other ways uh, to move towards climate smart agriculture is to create an output market that enables farmers to obtain a higher price for their efforts in maintaining the ecosystem. This would incentivize them to adopt more sustainable agriculture practices, including through sustainability certification or payments for environmental services or PES. Uh, this is a form of climate financing for smallholder farmers and other jurisdictions. And we have to, and lastly, but uh, as importantly, we have to equip our farmers with knowledge and information. And perhaps, you know, uh, we could support fee-based private agriculture extension services through partnership with NGOs, development agencies, uh, farmer associations, and uh, the private sector. And uh, at the global level, uh, the G20 uh, 
could commit to global public, uh, collaborations to accelerate investment in green technologies and R&D for sustainable and higher, higher yield agriculture. And, uh, you know, because uh, seeds are as important to food as chips are to computers, developing uh, technologies such as climate resilient seed varieties will be key to addressing yield gaps. And moreover, uh, for a fourth agriculture revolutions, uh, such as producing higher crop yields without the use of fertilizer or insecticides, is needed to cut greenhouse gas emissions. This is according to Nobel uh, laureate Stephen Chu. In the financial sector, the G20 leaders could task relevant working groups to explore a new climate financing framework to enable smallholder farmers to participate individually or through farmers' cooperatives in climate financing and, and the carbon market. And lastly, from the demand side, awareness of the global footprints from the food we eat could give incentive for farmers and corporates to produce food in a more sustainable way. This is uh, now made uh, uh, possible by technologies such as the blockchain. Thank you, Dr. Vihaja. Um, Dr. Roy, as a follow-up to that, uh, you know, the discussion on climate smart technologies and also on climate financing, perhaps, in your opinion, how can G20 nations scale up its uh, climate smart technologies? You know, what could be the roadmap here in order to promote sustainable agriculture? Oh, yes, uh, thank you. Smallholder farms and uh, rural communities in developing countries are especially vulnerable to the impacts of uh, climate change. So climate smart agriculture is a framework for developing decision support systems at the farm policy level. It aims to provide uh, principles to identify technologies, management tools, and policies that will enable farmers to adapt to challenges of climate change while maintaining and improving societal well-being. So G20 nations need to uh, scale up climate smart technologies to promote sustainable agriculture. And uh, I would like to highlight uh, about five or six ways in which can be done. First is uh, testing and adaptation of CSA practices. Uh, field surveys have shown that uh, in the case of uh, system of rice intensification and uh, conservation agriculture, the intense efforts made to uh, come up with right mix of approaches eventually led to the development and promotion of several variations and combinations customized uh, for such for each uh, specific location. Second is capacity development of all stakeholders. Capacity development activities for various uh, knowledge intermediaries, uh, the farmers, government extension staff, NGOs, and uh, so the private sector entities as well, and uh, researchers, government officials, etc. Third is setting up of user and client groups. Organizing farmers into groups, FPOs, uh, through which they can develop not only technical capacities, but also business management skills and seed productivity uh, is increasingly recognized as the best way forward. In fact, in Vietnam, uh, the SRI was promoted mainly through farmer field schools. Uh, fourthly, partnership development and coordination. The success of upscaling depends on the formation of uh, partnerships and that encompass a large number of actors, including donors, government, private sector, NGOs, farmer organizations. 
then uh, there are the incentives which can help incentives, imports, and infrastructure. And in fact, in uh, Vietnam, it was observed the farmers were incentivized to test, evaluate, and adopt pesticides. So, and also in uh, countries like Zambia, which where farmers received subsidies in a bit to uh, get them follow CA practices. So these kinds of incentives, inputs, infrastructure can help in uh, upscaling uh, uh, climate uh, smart agriculture. And next is uh, policy engagement and advocacy. Steering and influencing policy uh, is an important part of the process of upscaling knowledge. Almost all the projects uh, which have tried to, to engage with policymakers in a bid to gain political and financial backing, evidence-based advocacy efforts by uh, various organizations, uh, donor organizations, and government uh, agencies for promoting SRI have resulted in, uh, for example, in Vietnam, the Vietnamese government's recognition of SRI as a technical advancement for rice production, which led to consequent uh, increase in public investments. And similarly, in Sub-Saharan Africa, also it has been seen that uh, working with policymakers and partner institutions to harmonize seed laws so as to shorten the time time taken to announce, release, and promote improved soil seed varieties. So these are some of the ways in which uh, G20 countries can scale up uh, climate smart technologies. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Roy. Um, now going into uh, perhaps a slightly different do domain, but staying within uh, resilient agriculture or smart agriculture. Uh, Dr. Vihaja, uh, this is addressed to you. Genetically modified crops yield more when compared to normal traditional varieties. And this has the potential to perhaps ad address food security issues in a much easier way, right? Um, many countries like the US, Australia, Canada, Brazil, and even um, Republic of Korea have gradually shifted to production of GM food crops. In your opinion, what could be the strategy in shifting, you know, food crops slowly to GM food crops? Yeah, uh, thank you, Sharon. I think um, I think in regards to shifting uh, food productions to uh, GM food crops uh, faces uh, like political uh, resistance in a way, uh, at least in in some countries and. I think it's partly because, uh, you know, uh, I think some of these technologies have made uh, farmers uh, depend on on certain technologies or certain corporates, you know, for uh, for the seeds or or associated inputs such as the fertilizers, uh, pesticides um, that are produced solely by certain companies. So I think. Uh, you know, I think if 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 this kind of technologies could be uh, could be you know more decentralized in the sense that farmers don't have to depend on on these technologies once they start using these technologies uh, on some certain uh, corporates or or or, uh, or or companies, then I think that 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 would be like more politically feasible. Uh, and of course, you know, all of this. Uh, uh, GM crops have to have scientific base in terms of their safety for for human health. Other than other than that, I think you know greater investment 
uh, in biotechnologies, including GM crops and, uh, and, and, and digital agriculture, I think should be, should be promoted. Thank you, Dr. Vihaja. Now coming to the last question of the podcast today, Dr. Roy, what role do you think can digital public infrastructure play in the creation of reliable and sustainable food systems? And how do you think we can prioritize digital transformation within agriculture in the larger G20 agenda? Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, the role of digital public infrastructure for creation of reliable and sustainable food systems would include firstly, digital public infrastructure, which can ensure sustainable food systems and food security through efficient agri-value chains. Improving communications infrastructure is important for the uptake of digital technologies in agri-food systems. Investments uh, should also target associated enabling infrastructure, such as uh, public data sets on weather forecasts and calendars for crop and uh, livestock production. Secondly, responsible and progressive digitization is a process that entails anticipating the, the impacts of digitization on agricultural productivity, resilience, and sustainability while focusing on marginalized and vulnerable groups, including women, youth, and small-scale producers. Thirdly, policies contributing to sustainable and resilient agri-food systems would involve tailoring digitization towards conserving natural resources and building resilience. And finally, inclusive agricultural digitization policies should aim to ensure everything, especially marginalized groups uh, uh, such as women, small holders, etc. Now, coming to the second part of your question, prioritizing digitization, digital transformation within agriculture in the G20 agenda should include, uh, firstly, applying India stack to uh, G20. The driving vision of India stack is of open networks to establish a level playing field for members of a digital ecosystem. Uh, this project was conceptualized and first implemented in India where uh, it's rapid digital identity, uh, verification for channeling government subsidies directly to bank accounts of beneficiaries, including farmers. So the vision of India stack can be applied to G20 countries for transforming the agri-food system. Secondly, addressing digital divide through technical and institutional innovations. The digital revolution can make Automation come close to scale neutrality and thus be more accessible to all. Thirdly, improving agricultural extension and rural advisory services. Uh, E-extension is a valid complement to traditional extension using digital models for knowledge generation and dissemination. Digital technologies like uh, AI, IoT, uh, blockchain technology, uh, GIS, simulation modeling, and remote sensing must be harnessed and exploited to fill extent existing information gaps and provide effective guidance that farmers need. Uh, in addition to public funded extension services, even PPP, the uh, model can uh, be, uh, uh, can be uh, done and uh, for uh, improving the supply chains. Fourthly, focusing on rural youth to ensure a smooth and inclusive transition in the digital era. Digital technologies can spur the interest of rural youth to find jobs in the agri-food sector. A specific agricultural automation agenda should aim to build their competencies, not only for agricultural production, but also for performing high-tech operations along agri-food value chains. This will be complemented by financial and policy support, as well as research, development, and technical assistance. 
to ensure a holistic approach to the transformation of agriculture. And then finally, ensuring that women benefit from digitization. Women in India have benefited significantly from digital financial inclusion through the Jam Trinity, that is Shantan, Aadhaar, Mobile. G20 can prioritize the same for other developing and less developed economies. So these are some of the priorities for digital transformation for G20. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Roy. I think uh, there is a larger consensus in understanding that, uh, you know, India's um, digital ecosystem can be indeed leveraged in transforming our culture through its incumbent presidency this year. Um, thank you, Dr. Roy and Dr. Vihaja for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. With that, we have come to the end of this episode of our podcast, Policy Beyond Politics. We'll be back with another thought-provoking and interesting topic next week. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Listen to our podcast series, Policy Beyond Politics by CPPR on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and also the CPPR website, www.cppr.in.